4: Blackstar Network is here. Oh, Hold no punches. I'm <laughs> real uh,
5: revolutionary right now
8: It is December the 30th, the last Friday of 2022. Uh, Happy New Year, uh, preemptively. I'm attorney Robert Petillo sitting in for Roland Martin for one last day while he is on vacation. Here's what's coming up tonight on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. We're doing our 2022 year in review. We'll talk to our panel about the number one stories uh, that we want to remember and want to analyze from 2022, and also do some predictions as to what you're going to see coming up in 2023. Also, before we get to that, that we're going to be talking to the attorney for the Black Army veteran who was attacked by police officers in Colorado and abused. He's now suing the police department and those officers will talk to his attorney. Also, tonight, uh, in our education segment, we're going to be talking to the uh, officials from the Atlanta University Center who are expanding their engineering program to help re- provide additional access to students. We want to make sure we cover all the stories and get you ready for the new year. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network.
9: He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it.
10: Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on top and it's rolling.
8: Uh, a U.S. Army veteran, 29 years old, uh, is currently suing three officers from the Colorado Springs Police Department after an incident in October of this year uh, where he was severely beaten by officers. Now, ostensibly, the officers have claimed, as always, uh, that he was resisting arrest, and therefore they were using a proper force to uh, force him out of the vehicle. However, body cam video has been released where we can see exactly what happened uh, and what was inflicted upon Mr. Gatson. I believe the video is pl- uh, playing currently. Uh, Mr. Gatson is th- suing the three officers for excessive force uh, for failure to intervene. Uh, we learned in the Derek Chauvin's trial that officers do have an affirmative duty that if another officer is using excessive force to intervene to stop that use of excessive force. Joining us now to discuss this is the attorney for Mr. Gatson, Harry Daniels. Harry, how are you doing this evening? Hey, what's going on, Robert? How you doing, man? Long time. I, I know, you know, it's, it's interesting because we always talk around these cases around the country of excessive force from police, uh, of uh, police brutality cases. It's as if they have still not gotten any message. So can you talk a little about what exactly happened to Mr. Gadsden, what led to the excessive force from police officers? Yeah, Robert, uh, back in uh, uh,
2: October, Mr. Gaston was pulled over for not having his tag uh, properly displayed. Uh, the officer approached him on normal traffic stop uh, and asked for Mr. Gasson's driver's license, which he complied. Uh, subsequently, when he called backup and was backup responded and came to the scene, they decided they want to do a, a uh, some type of DUI uh, investigation on Mr. Gasson. Uh, one, Mr. Gasson was not driving, uh, breaking any rules or traffic laws in, in the state of Colorado. Uh, but simply on the fact, because they smelled marijuana. Well, Robert, you, you know, well, as I know, that uh, Colorado uh, legalized marijuana some time ago. So the smell of marijuana is not a proper cause to suggest any uh, illegal activity in the state of Colorado. But nevertheless, they want to do a, a DUI investigation on him with no proper cause to do so. And instead of explaining to him exactly what was happening, what was going on, you know, they decided to uh, tell him to got out of the vehicle. He refused because he, he was, in fact, confused what was happening, and immediately they grabbed him, uh, and you can see the video from there. They used uh, excessive force, man. They beat this guy, punched him over in the head over 25 times, knee him, kicked him. He was on the ground, kicked him in the face, slapped him, you know, and, and so the injuries, they charged him with felonious assaults on the peace officers. Uh, the good thing that the Paso County DA in, uh, in Colorado Springs, she, in fact, dismissed those charges, and his DUI was also dismissed by the DMV hearing officer in this matter, determined as no probable cause. He still have pending charges, uh, but we believe those charges should not have been brought against him, one, uh, because he was resisting a unlawful, excessive use of force against him. Um, and, re- and quite frankly, I believe he was trying to survive uh, at that point. When a man gets beaten so many times and hit so many times, then you're really going to survive a—that uh, prompted us to file a federal lawsuit in this matter.
8: And I wanted to talk a little bit about Mr. Gatson because the reason he was in the car in the first place was that he has been working DoorDash. He is a Army veteran who is currently unhoused, uh, who is working towards that. Can you tell us a little bit about the background and the person of Mr. Gatson? Actually, Robert, uh,
2: Dalvin is actually from the state of Georgia, uh, from Savannah, Georgia, uh, and he uh, served in the, the Army National Guard here in the state of Georgia uh, for some years. And he just fell on hard times, you know, um, hard times. He was door dashing, uh, saving money uh, to go back, to get an apartment, to go back in the military, the Space Force. Uh, and he was unhoused at the time, but he was working uh, towards that goal. And, in fact, the gentleman who was in the car with him at the time, he was giving this guy a ride to work. He got paid him 10 or 20 bucks. So he was being a good Samaritan there, uh, you know, helping this guy out. But, you know, uh, he was in a position where he was— uh, I guess I want to say wrong place and wrong time, but, you know, they decided to stop this black man at two o'clock in the morning and, you know, oh, he, he, he's definitely up to no good. So we got to do a further investigation and see can we find something to stick, you know, and, you know, the video speaks for itself. Uh, this case is, um, this is something that when you look at it, it's unconscionable. And a good thing, the state of Colorado has some very liberal laws that denies law law enforcement qualified immunity from the rip. Matter of fact, they cannot assert qualified immunity in the state of Colorado under Colorado statute of the Police Reform Act, and that came into play after the Elijah McClain incident that took place in Aurora, Colorado. So we're very confident that we have a very strong case. The video speaks for itself. We're seeking justice for Dalvin Gasson in his case. And like you said, it happens over and over again. You know, no matter what, down at Jared Hobbs, down in uh, Camden County, uh, it doesn't matter. It's continue to happen, and we're going to continue to pursue justice and fight for for people who are suffering these type of incidents.
8: What are the officers saying in the case? Because, of course, they have the, the standard defense saying, well, they were uh, simply trying to execute their duty. They were in fear. The person resisted. I believe they uh, stated there was a knife somewhere in the car, and because of that, that justified the additional actions. What, what exactly are their defenses to this? Why What are they uh, claiming uh, vitiated this uh, vicious beating? Well, let me start here. First of all, the
2: policy and the law in the state of Colorado, before you use any force, you must give a ver- verbal warning that you are going to use force. Well, that didn't happen here. Uh, the reason why that law is in place or policy, because it, it tells a person, like, hey, you know, if you don't comply, we may put a hands-on approach to for you to comply. Uh, they didn't do that here. And their response was that uh, they feel is that he might have been uh, reaching for a knife, a pocket knife in the console, the middle console. Well, Robert, you can see the video. We have multiple angles in this video. Mr. Gaston's body was laying over the console while one officer had his left hand and the other officer had his right hand and the officer's pumping and beating, just punching him in the face multiple, uh, multiple times. There's nowhere you're going to find that he was reaching for any knife. In fact, that was the basis of the charge that they brought up against him in a Paso County court in Colorado Springs. Well, guess what? The DA, the district attorney, uh, they looked at this video, determined, no, he wasn't reaching. There's nothing in this video, so to reach for anything. And you can look at the video it's playing here. This is a man trying to survive. He don't have time to reach to try to reach for anything. He's trying to protect his, his head and his body uh, from these assault, assaulted blows that
8: he's taking. And so one of the officers, I understand, in the case uh, has a track record of previous right. accusations of police brutality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, one of the officers, um, and I dare not call them officers because officers don't perform this way. We don't refer
2: to the individuals. The, one of the individuals uh, wearing the uniform, uh, he in fact has a track record. He, he was uh, he resigned from the Colorado Springs Police Department uh, for wrenching uh, a person's arm uh, for jaywalking, or um, the guy used, uh, used the middle used the middle finger against him, and he turned around, squad car around, which you have a First Amendment to shoot a bird at a person grabs his car, throw this guy against the against the car, uh, put him like some type of arm bar. And, you know, and he has a extensive history. This is not the only time. He's actually went to other agencies, and uh, and I don't know exactly what transpired there, but he left those agencies. Uh, but he came back to Colorado Springs after he resigned from an incident that took place. And this is what you find. And it is moving over to another county over. Let it cool down for a while and come back. So, and he's the one who's in a picture. I don't know if you have a picture or not. He's actually smiling with the bloody knuckles. He punched Davin so hard that his his gloves ripped. Through his, glo- his, uh, his uh, gl- uh, gloves ripped, and his knuckles was
8: bloody. That's how hard
2: he was punching Gavin.
8: Can you talk talk a little bit about the the long-term effects of this beating? Because, uh, one, Mr. Gatson is already an Army veteran. He's already suffering from uh, uh, a housing insecurity. And then you add on top of that, he already had a fear of officers. And then when you get beat by officers, clearly that's going to increase that. Can you talk a little bit about the injuries he sustained?
2: Well, first off, look at those pictures. He he suffered some significant injuries, clothes, head injuries, uh, memory loss, a lot at times, he's very foggy. Uh, he can't remember things. And, and Robert, keep in mind, this is a young man. This is a 29 year old man. Uh, look, at he's completely unrecognizable in that picture. Uh, he had multiple bruising, blood running from his ear, his nose, his his mouth, uh, one of his eyes. I uh, had abrasions on him, uh, and he has some long term issues, not just physical. Uh, he has some long term mental issues. That's dealing with this uh, post-traumatic stress, and he's currently uh, seeking care uh, providers because you know to look at this video and to see these things is one thing, but when he even look at these videos and he immediately breaks down crying, it's very difficult to watch. You can imagine how difficult it is to watch for a person who who was actually uh, the person who's getting
8: beaten in this video. Uh, And with that, uh, can we talk a little bit about just uh, kind of in the macro, the fact that officers are still able to have these complaints against them and just kind of move on down to the next uh, jurisdiction and do the exact same thing again until finally it's caught on camera or they do something grievous enough to get them in trouble. Uh, What has to happen to stop this revolving door that keeps bad cops in uh, in positions of power? Results. Results have to happen. And
2: what I mean by results, you have to have arrests, uh, prosecution, and and prison sentences. You know, and you would think that, and and hopefully that would change, Uh, who knows. But I know one thing is that, uh, as you can see in Camden County, we had with Jared Hobbs, that the sheriff um, took him two and a half months to even address the issue, and once the video came out, the GBI came in within a week, brought criminal charges, felony criminal charges against those officers. Here, I mean, I'm not comparing those cases, but you can see in this video, Mr. Hobbs suffered a very significant beating here. Um, so the district attorney in El Paso County they have made a statement that they are investigating the matter. I guess for a view of a criminal look at the officers, we are seeking the Department of Justice review to come in to investigate this matter because these things continue to happen over and over. If you don't get these type of officers off the street, the next thing you know, you have Elijah McClain, McLean, you have a you know march, or somebody being shot and killed, and one of these officers, um, Robert. During the time that that uh, uh, Dalvin was being beaten, he actually drew his gun out, drew his weapon. He's already getting beaten by these officers, but he pu- pulled his weapon out and pointed at him. So it could have been a, a pull of the trigger and Mr. Gasson would have been not here today. So...
8: Well, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Please keep us updated on any developments in the case so we can keep the audience updated. Uh, Harry Daniels, a ter- attorney for Dalvin Gatson, uh, from uh, talking to us about this case. Thank you so much for joining us, Harry. Thanks, Rob. Good seeing you, bro. Take care. You too. Uh, we'll be back after the break for more Roland Martin Unfiltered streaming live on the Black Star Network. Okay, thanks, bro.
10: It's a different kind of piece. I do believe that the 30 years I was acting was to prepare me for what I'm supposed to be doing and that what I'm really am good at.
4: But when you were acting, were you even thinking about directing? Nope. Were were you, so what the hell happened? If you had
10: asked me 15 years ago, I probably would have said, no, I don't know. I was doing Ava's, uh, Ava DuVernay's first film, I Will Follow. Mm -hmm. And during that process, I think, because it was her first film, maybe I- She self-taught. Absolutely. I probably gave too many suggestions. And at some point, Ava said to me, I think you're a director and you don't know it.
4: You talk about blackness 0196. The cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. PayPal is RM Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com. This is Judge Matthews. What's going on, everybody? It's your boy, Mack and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
8: Welcome back. Let's bring our panel in. We have Kelly Bethay, communication strategist, Matt Manning, civil rights attorney, Dr. Larry Walker, assistant professor, University of Central Florida. So it's the end of the year, last show of the year, so we're going to do our 2022 review. We're going to do a little bit different, though. If you've ever seen Around the Horn or any of those shows, we're going to do almost a lightning round. We're going to give everybody one minute to talk about each topic, and we're going to try to go through on like 20 topics. Uh, so everybody ready? Uh, what The first thing we're gonna start on, of course, is gonna be the Will Smith and Chris Rock slapping the Oscars. For those of you who, who feel like this happened 10 years ago, no, that was earlier this year. Uh, at the Oscars, Will Smith, after a joke was made by Chris Rock, uh, went on stage and slapped Chris Rock on live television. Of course, it started an entire social commentary um, that lasted months on end. Uh, we still have not gotten a full resolution. There's a red table talk on it. So I want to get from uh, from each of you, why do you think that this slap was so important and made so much, reverberated so much nationwide? Uh, and uh, Why do you think this is one of the biggest stories of the year 2022? We'll start with
6: you, Dr. Larry Walker. So I think it's quite simply, it was a global event. It was live. Um, I'm not sure in terms of, you know, the, the time delay, but anytime you have anything like that, and listen, in the age of social media, anything that happens is always picks up, picks, is picked up and then it goes viral. Anytime you have two superstars, recognizable figures, and once again, this is this sh- this was people viewing this throughout the world, and an incident like that, that no one certainly expected, not Chris Rock, I don't think Will Smith expected to do that after, you know, even after Chris Rock made the joke, from walking on stage and slapping him in front of a live audience, that is perfect for trending on Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. And that's what happened. Um, The unfortunate thing is is that, obviously, that evening was also important for Will Smith in terms of Oscar, Uh, Questlove also getting Oscar. I also know that I'm from from Philadelphia, so it also broke my heart to see Will behave in this manner. And then, uh, obviously, in terms of social media, people having a conversation about what it means in terms of both of those being black men. But ultimately, Will Smith, uh, what he did was irresponsible. He should have never walked on stage if he had an issue with Chris Rock. In my opinion, opinion, he should have taken up with him some kind of, you know, after party uh, and talked to him and said, listen, I have a problem with what you said about my wife. Let me talk to you about this. Typically, these guys have known each other for years. So obviously, like I said, it, it was trending because it was live and we had two superstars. And, and it's a global event. So it's unfortunate to happen. Hopefully, Will Smith can learn from this situation. I know Chris Rock has a special coming up Netflix in a couple of months. I know that should be interesting. But overall, it should just never have happened.
8: Absolutely. Uh, Matt, uh, on that same point, you know, I think there was a big discussion about the fact that this was two black men fulfilling this kind of stereotype of the hyper-masculine, violent black men, even you know, when you have millions of dollars in suits and ties and those other things. Uh, what do you think this said to the community? What will be the lasting takeaway that people will get uh, from this controversy?
12: You know, I actually think, Robert, that what people will take away from this controversy is that people of this stature don't get prosecuted for things that happen on film in front of the entire world. I mean, I think a lot of what happened in this case, uh, as it relates to Will Smith in particular, is the way he's been marketed for so many years is that he's kind of the... Safe black fa- you know, one of the safe black faces in-, in the blockbuster space. So, I think, one, that drove a lot of the analysis and a lot of the kind of think pieces behind, we're surprised he's the kind of person who would do this. Um, to extrapolate from that as it relates to two black men, I mean, yeah, I know they- there are a lot of things that are going to play on those stereotypes, but I think, honestly, that's secondary in this analysis, and it's more people, I think, as Dr. Walker said, of this stature. Um, And that's what's driven uh, that. But I do think one of the things that we have to ask is, you know, why isn't there a prosecution from this? Not that I'm angling for it, but it's very rare that you have crimes happen on, you know, TV in live uh, time and that nothing comes of it. And I think that's a a better question, frankly, as we see uh, lack of prosecution as it relates to highly um, statured people, including our former president, the question becomes, you know, why is there another class of people that uh, evades the same responsibility that you and I would be held to? So I think that's one of the questions that comes from it. And as it relates to both of them, I think their stature is what's driven a lot of the analysis and coverage.
8: Yeah, I think one of the questions people had at the time was if Will Smith had slapped Jerry Seinfeld, they would have taken out him out of there in uh, handcuffs. But because it was Chris Rock, for some reason, it ended up being, uh, well, those just two uh, black men fighting it out. I guess that's what they do. And it turned into an entire social controversy there. Uh, Kelly, kind of on that point, you know, you see a lot of what goes on on social media. This turned into this big uh, toxic masculinity versus equally toxic femininity on the Internet, uh, talking about Jada and August Alsina and... Uh, Wills, manhood, and these sorts of things. Why does this? Why do so many things descend into kind of this black men versus black women thing online? And why was this a catalyst for that?
13: It was a catalyst because it was the first thing that happened in the year. That that's just kind of like the end all be all of that specific question. But to your point about the toxic masculinity and femininity, I think it was also a catalyst for the things to come through this year from a Black culture perspective of Black women being blamed for Black men's actions on behalf of Black women, right? And that, to me, was the more exhausting point of it, because it was more of a continuation of things that we have been talking about, what feels like, since the beginning of time, being, you know, Uh, especially when it comes to Will Smith and Jada, how he is always uh, sucking up whatever Jada has uh, done in the media and the like. But Jada's actions are completely independent of Will Smith's actions, and that was not something that was discussed enough. It was more like, oh, Will's at a tipping point, and therefore it's Jada's fault because of all these years of X, Y, and Z. But... To sum it up, uh, I'm, uh, it does feel like it was 10 years ago, right? But it, it was only 11 <laughs> months ago. Um, hopefully, we do not have a repeat of any of, any of that uh, during this Oscar season. Um, granted, Will has been banned for 10 years. But to your point of, of Will not being charged, my understanding is that it's because Chris Rock did. Uh, chose not to press charges. Um, now, whether the, the state can do that on behalf of Chris, what have you, I don't know. But I thought it was one of those situations where because of the 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 gravamen of the offense being two black men on this global stage, Chris didn't want to uh, elevate the situation any further. Uh, but I could be wrong. Uh,
8: well, you know, I think it's one of those things that people are going to be talking about for years. That story up. We have to talk about the confirmation of Supreme Court Associate Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. President Biden uh, fulfilled a campaign promise that he made. He said before the South Carolina primary, I will appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, he came through with that with uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Now, of course, he had to have a Senate majority in order to do so, because please believe if Mitch McConnell uh, was still the Senate majority leader, um, they, she wouldn't have even gotten a vote. They would have made up some new, some new reason to do so. But she was able to pass through. Uh, Kelly, going back to you, what did it, does it mean to have the first Black woman on the Supreme Court?
13: It means everything. I mean, it is truly a momentous occasion. I remember celebrating this when it happened, um, I wish it meant even more, being that she would have, you know, tipped the scales as far as uh, the right wing versus left wing thinking on the court. Um, she just replaced a a justice as far as the as the votes go, but as far as a Black woman on the bench, as someone who has graduated from law school and, as, at, one, at one point in time, aspired to be in her shoes, it was like I was a little girl again seeing me up there. I, I think a lot of Black lawyers, a bl- yes, lot of Black women in law saw themselves in mm-hmm. uh, KBJ uh, that day. And every day since, in that you know, we are finally being seen on, on the highest bench in the land, in the highest court in the land. And that is just an incredible feeling um, that has carried me throughout 2022.
8: And, Professor Walker, on this point, you know, President Biden made it clear during his campaign that he will be appointing a lot of black women to a lot of positions. He has the first black female vice president, first black female Supreme Court justice, uh, first black female U.N. Uh, secretary, first black woman on the uh, Federal Reserve, uh, first black woman to be his White House spokesperson. Uh, is this just symbolism or is this uh, actual progress for the community?
6: No, it's progress. And and, and listen, you know, I, you know, I'm a former... Cra- you know, Capitol Hill staffer, and I can tell you that in my, and certainly my time on the Hill and since then, you haven't seen this, so many women, black women in positions Mm -hmm. of power. Let's also give, um, you know, President Biden credit for the number of black women he's, um, you know, um, in terms of that have been appointed, um, uh, confirmed by this, by the uh, Senate. Let's not forget that. That's a, that's that's another really important piece of this, in addition to um, Supreme Court Justice Kentucky Brown Jackson being confirmed by the U.S. Senate. I also want to highlight something else in terms of we talked about the confirmation hearings. First of all, black women, in in terms of supporting Joe Biden from South Carolina on after the comments he made, but also I want to talk about how black women get mistreated in these public arenas. Let's not forget what she went through during the Senate confirmation hearing in terms of how Republicans attacked her record and and not only her record in terms of her judicial record, but also her record in terms of what kind of person she was. So let's not forget that. But the bottom line is, President Biden, like a few politicians I can remember, made a major promise to the Black community and actually followed through. But this is really important not only in terms of what happened here, you know, in the last couple of months, but also in terms of what it means for Black women in the future. There are Black girls who, you know, young, young sisters who are, you know, who are in high school, who are undergrad or in law school now, can say now, you know, what? Maybe I can be the, a second um, Black woman to become Supreme Court justice. So it's not just symbolism, this is a lifetime important. But once again, like I got to say, it's also important not only in terms of her confirmation, but also the number of black female um, black women that have been confirmed by the U.S. Senate for Federal, federal ju- Judgeships also.
8: And, Matt, can you talk a little bit about what KBJ or, or uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson is going to mean to the Supreme Court? Where we both saw last week on the Title 42 decision, she uh, concurred on a dissent uh, with Neil Gorsuch uh, opposing the uh, Supreme Court, basically overstepping their constitutional power in order to extend Title 42. Uh, we've seen her uh, voting alongside uh, progressives, but also crossing party lines, uh, joining opinions with other groups. What is her judicial temperament her experience coming from being a prosecutor, being a, uh, a lower
12: court judge, mean to this court going forward? I think that's a brilliant question, and I think the simple answer is that she has the actual experience to make decisions that will affect actual Americans. I didn't even realize it until I prepared for today that she is the first uh, justice to have criminal defense experience since Justice Thurgood Marshall. So you think about that. You know, I know that's one of the things she was attacked about, and I think Dr. Walker, you know, said that very astutely. Uh, She was attacked in these confirmation hearings, but it's really absurd that we don't have more justices who have stood next to someone and fought for their constitutional rights, fought for their freedom. I mean, that's a very honorable thing to do. It's something I've done in my career uh, for almost 10 years. And I think it's very important. I think the average American does not consider that the way your rights are uh, you know, protected and the way your rights are championed is when you have somebody standing next to you acting as a criminal defense attorney, at least in that regard. And for her to have been in that space, is crucially important because when a challenge comes up before her, she will remember what it's actually like to have you know, your rights tested in court and to require the state to meet the burden of proof. So I think that's important. And I think the larger principle with that is that she's actually been in the trenches. That's what frustrated me so much about her confirmation is that so much of what we hear is just you know, talking points. I mean, you, it doesn't matter what school you go to. She went to Harvard, she's incredibly credentialed, incredibly experienced. And they still attacked her record as though she's not considerably more experienced than people like Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So I think she's a very necessary voice. And I think she's a voice who will be coming from the necessary experience to lead us forward with some of the seminal questions we're going to be faced with, including things like qualified immunity, Roe v. Wade and some of the other stuff that's kind of in the national zeitgeist right now.
8: Absolutely. I think that her appointment is going to be a, a, uh, a basically a, a moment that unites people around this idea of having folks on the Supreme Court who are not just academics, people who have just written papers and written books went directly from law school uh, to faculty to author to being on the court. We need some people who actually know what it's like to be a lawyer lawyer. We're going to keep our year in view going after the break. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered streaming live on the Black Star Network. We'll be back after the break.
10: hatred on the streets a horrific scene a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence
5: Next on The Black Table, with me, Greg Carr, we welcome the Black Star Network's very own Roland Martin, who joins us to talk about his new book, White Fear, how the browning of America is making white folks lose their minds. The book explains so much about what we're going through in this country right now, and how, as white people head toward becoming a racial minority, it's going to
4: get, well, let's just say, even more interesting. We are going to see more violence. We're going to see more vitriol. Because as each day passes,
5: it, it is a nail in that coffin. The one and only Roland Martin on the next Black Table, right here on the Black Star Network.
12: I am Israel Houghton
4: with Israel and New Breed. What's up, what's up? I'm Dr. Ricky Dillard, the choir master. Hey, yo, peace world, what's going on? It's the Love King of R&B, Raheem Devon, and you're watching Roland Martin, Unfiltered.
8: We are doing the 2022 year in review for our panel. We're doing hustle time. So we're doing about a minute per person per topic, get through as many of these topics as possible. And then we got to talk about the Trump crime spree of 2022. As you know, there are active investigations against President Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, where he's accused of in- election interference trying to pressure the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, uh, to throw the election in his favor. He's under investigation in New York uh, for the Trump Organization and their business dealings. He's under investigation for January where he sits in his involvement, that being a criminal referral uh, to the Justice Department. He's under investigation for the Mar-a-Lago documents, where a special prosecutor has been set up uh, to determine whether or not he violated the espionage by keeping a classified information in Mar-a-Lago. But the question is, will any of these finally get Trump? Seems like we have a new thing that's going to get Trump every six months. And just like Frank Underwood in House of Cards, he always makes his way out. So, Matt, I'm going to start with you. What, Which of these investigations is most likely to finally get Trump?
12: He's going to get caught up. He's not going to be Teflon on all of these. And I think the one that I personally think he has the most issue with is the Mar-a-Lago classified documents issue, because I was just talking about this to a colleague today. I think he's gonna have real problems with controverting the mental state, right? Generally, in a crime, there is a mental state. You intentionally or knowingly do something. Well, if your lawyers are conferring with Department of Justice lawyers, and they're given several opportunities for you to turn over all these documents, you don't turn over those documents, subsequent classified documents are found in your possession then it's very hard to defend the idea that you were unaware that you had to turn those documents over as to all the other uh charges you know i think some of them are going to stick i think really what you're looking at though is a psychological question of whether juries are going to be willing to commit uh to convict excuse me and whether prosecutors will really be willing to go forward with charges i know we've talked about that ad nauseum on the show But I think as it relates to those that you delineated, I especially think he's got problems with the Mar-a-Lago investigation.
8: And, Kelly, you know, uh, Matt mentioned the prosecutors. And you have Fonnie Willis, the prosecutor in Fulton County, going after um, President Trump, who I've tried cases against. She ain't no pushover. You have Letitia James, the prosecutor in New York, going after President Trump. Which of these cases, uh, including the January 6th cases, do you think will be the most likely to result in a conviction or at least a prosecution of President Trump? (laughs)
13: <laughs> I mean, I feel like all of them have enough evidence for a conviction. The fact of the matter is, I think which one is—I I think it's really whoever's on first. Um, when it comes to the New York cases, though, I think because from what I recall, from yeah, from what I recall, if they uh, have enough evidence, if they have enough uh, history there, considering that he what? he's a New York uh, native and all of these things, like, they've been working on his case for an incredibly long time, like, before all of the January 6th stuff, from my understanding. So I think they have evidence outside of just insurrection and him being dumb while he's president of the United States. Uh, they have enough on him outside of things that we just saw all all year in 2022,
8: so probably New York. All right, and, and Larry, you know, just got the t- Trump tax returns released, showing that he, for several years he paid absolutely no taxes. There's one year where he claimed that Trump Aviation made $42,000 and also lost exactly $42,000 in order to pay zero taxes on it. And no, Trump Aviation is not a real company, it's just the company he created to write off his helicopter expenses. Which of these prosecutions in the President Trump is going to finally get him?
6: So i like to describe 2022 as the year getting over, <laughs> and 2023 <laughs> will be rent due. Rent, the rent is due. <laughs> I mean, look, we talked about all these Barlago, mar uh, Georgia. I think that what you really could get involved also, and I think any of these uh, cases are certainly going to be or problematic, as we can see. But I think internally with the January 6th Select Committee in terms of the referrals to the uh, DOJ, I think that that will also get and listen, like all of these cases seem, you know, clear. And I know we talk, call them Teflon Don in terms of, literally, in terms of being able to skirt uh, laws for the last few decades. But I think that with the, st- the great word of Select Committee and Chairman Benny Thompson, and like I said, with the referral they've made to the uh, DOJ, I think that will, that will get them if these other cases won't. But I certainly think mar lago in particular, um, as I said, I wor- worked on the Hill, and anything relating to classified documents, if that was me, I would have been placed under the jail <laughs> the day after. <laughs>
8: You have been all the way in Guantanamo, let's be for real. Like they, they don't let you right. take classified you documents, documents to keep them... Yeah, yeah. You can't keep them in a closet next to the buffet bar at Mar-a-Lago. I mean, let's be for real. Uh, continuing with Hustle Time, we have to talk about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. As many of you remember, the Supreme Court uh, released a decision 6-3 to three, uh, overturning the 50-year-old precedence of Roe versus Wade, turning America basically back to the Missouri Compromise. You have half of the uh, states literally being abortion states and half being uh, anti-abortion states with state uh, laws which restrict abortion to six weeks kicking in across the country. Uh, President Biden signed an executive order to protect abortion on the national level. Uh, However, they were not able to push through a protection for uh, abortion rights uh, legislatively the same way they did with the respect for marriage. So, Kelly, I will throw it over to you. What does this decision to overturn Roe mean long term for America? And what's the future of this overturning uh, when we go forward legislatively?
13: That's a loaded question. Um, ironically, I started The Handmaid's Tale this year. Um, I had never seen it, uh, heard of it, of course, but i never seen it, and I watched it a couple months back, and the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade seemed like the catalyst to start something s- aligned with The Handmaid's Tale story. I'm not saying that we are on our way to becoming Gilead, per se, but it's certainly mirroring the themes in that show in that, women are increasingly becoming uh objectified and just seen as as property because there's no way you can justify taking away my right to do with what i want with my body for whatever reason and and act like we can just go about our merry little way as americans that's just not how this is going to work especially when you had the freedom to do what you want with your body for 50 years. Um, So with that in mind, what I see in this country is a lot of archaic, asinine laws um, getting ready to roll out in 2023. I see a lot of um, women honestly, supporting these laws because they think that it's the Christian thing to do or the moral thing to do. And that's not the case in either category. Um, and I am concerned. I, I'm just concerned with how it is going to be spun into a morality movement or a, you know, more conservative movement and not going to be called out for what it is, which is stupid.
8: Uh, 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 Matt, on that same point, you know, I think that what people uh, miss in this case is the ignoring of stare decisis, uh, the breaking of precedence. What does it mean when we know that we have a Supreme Court now that has a 6-3 majority that don't give a damn about precedence, doesn't give a damn about stare decisis? They're willing to overturn uh, long-standing laws. They've become the activist court that they used to warn us about in
12: the 1980s. Can I say first, Robert, that you are killing it tonight. All of your questions are brilliant. And I think the answer to that is, one, they got where they wanted to go. I think the thing that people are learning about the Supreme Court is it's not apolitical. No matter how much we try to lie to ourselves about that, it's not. You look at the confirmation processes, you look at who's chosen, you look at the promises made, you look at the attacks lobbied, it's very clear that a lot of the Supreme Court justices are working in lockstep with their respective parties. To shift gears a little bit, though, I think your metaphor that this is the Missouri compromise is the most brilliant thing I've heard as it relates to this, because this is exactly what I continue thinking about as it relates to the Supreme Court and really your average American citizen. We have a crisis of federalism in this country. I live in Texas. The idea that a woman in Texas does not have the same rights as a woman in Massachusetts when we live in a globalized economy and in a country that something happening in real time across the country I can not only see but comment on really I think stretches the bounds of the constitution and the federalism that you know, under- underpins our government. And I think at some point we have to have a reckoning with how we're going to resolve that. I know what the constitution says, but realistically uh, you know, citizens around the country have denied amendments in-, in Kentucky and Kansas and California and all these other places to their constitutions. And I think the large question becomes, we as Americans, how do we countenance having rights in one state that you don't have in another state? Particularly, rights that go towards bodily autonomy. So, I think it's important that we continue to, you know, be vigilant to basically tell the Supreme Court what it is we want as Americans. Because I think here they just ignored the precedent because they, you know, voted along party lines to get where they wanted to go, rather than looking at what was appropriate constitutionally.
8: Yeah, I remember back in law school, you know, you'll read decisions from Learned Hand and some of these titans on the court, and they'd have this long reasoning going back to the star chambers of uh, European common law. Now, just like, look, this is what we wanted it to be, so y'all figure it out later. And that's pretty much what the Supreme Court is now. Uh, Larry, even Wolf the Dobbs decision. We still saw in places like Georgia O'Brien Kemp and Florida, Ron DeSantis and uh, Governor Abbott in Texas getting 70% of the white women's vote in the midterm elections and that was across the board nationwide. What do you think this means long term politically of uh, the Dobbs decision of me?
0: Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
3: at Edu,
8: People credit it with Democrats holding on uh, in the midterms, but also, uh, you know, it didn't really hurt Republicans as much as people thought it would.
6: So in terms of white women and their vote for the three, you know, conservative, you know, governors you talked about, this is when they'll mess around and find out situations. Let, let's be clear about, we talk about this issue relating to the reversal of Roe, Roe v. Wade. This, is, this was decades in the making. This is, it, this is not, a, it, sh- it shouldn't be sh- shocking any legal experts, any one of the policy backgrounds in terms of following how the federal society has been creating a pipeline of, of judges to get us, and in the, in the Republican Party has been you know, working together to make sure we got to this kind of their, their um, Supreme Court decision Super Bowl, so to speak. So it's not really that surprising we've gotten here. And I think the question is, what does this country look for look like moving forward, Alex? four to eight to 12 to 20 years. And we do have a dividing line in terms of, you know, blue states, pro-reproductive rights, and red states, some of which have large uh, population-centered, large states like Texas and uh, where I am in Florida, in terms of limiting a woman's reproductive rights. And it's almost like we're, we're having, you know, it's this ideological civil war we've had and it's progressively gotten worse over the last several years. But I really don't... It's, it's, I'm curious to me to see what happens, like I said, over the next several years in terms of, do we continue to see red states prosecute individuals that try to go... women that try to go to blue states and get an abortion? And, and what happens in those blue states? How do they push back? But other... I want to go back... circle back around your point about white women and, and the percentages you highlighted. It reminds me of a song by a public enemy called Fear Black Black Planet. And let's be clear about <laughs> this decision and what it means for neoconserved religious conservatives. It is about maintaining a certain population and power balance. That's all it is about. It's not about fairness and equity. It's certainly not about what the majority wants. It is about demographic change and power and control. And so over the next several years, like I said, it'll be really interesting to see if some white women who have voted in the way you just described wake up now that their rights have been infringed on but
8: I wouldn't bet on it. Well, you know, look, 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 for millennials, we ain't having kids, and that's what this is really about, white people wanting to have more children. For millennials, dogs are the new children, plants are the new dogs, and children are just like this exotic thing that only rich people can afford. I don't understand how y'all have them. Uh, wh- last door before the break, I'm gonna give super hustle time, 30 seconds each. Walker versus Warnock. Why was this race still so dang close They went to a runoff? It was still less than a point uh matt i'm gonna start with you why the hell was this race so close between walker
12: and warnock because people are stupid and uh you know (laughs) they were. i think frankly and they were you know either blinded by celebrity or they were allowing uh herschel walker to be pimped by the republican party i mean he clearly was not qualified and the fact that this was as close as it is uh should set off alarm bells i know you're there in georgia but i mean to me it's just absurd that this it was ever this close especially when you see a, a candidate who's out espousing ideas that are directly contrary to his own you know, life experience, I think it's extremely problematic. And it's, it's concerning for me going forward. I'm glad Warnock won, but I don't know how Herschel Walker was ever really in the, the race for this uh, Senate seat. And, Kelly, Herschel
8: Walker threw a pregnant white woman down the flight of stairs and still got 70 percent of the white woman vote. Uh, what does it mean, what does it tell us about what America really views when it comes to women, that they will take a serial woman beater and still nearly elect him Senate, to the Senate?
13: Well, this is what I was talking about previously, about how women are increasingly becoming less of a human in people's eyes and more as an object, as an incubator for children, as as a thing, you know, like, I don't know if you remember the show My Wife and Kids, but just using the titles like My Wife and Kids, like, like we are property. We are something to behold, but not something to respect. And that's one aspect of it. But um, more pointedly, it really just goes to show how, how much people want to preserve the power that they have to keep the power that they have, that they are willing to forego morals, they are willing to forego laws, <laughs> they are willing to do whatever it takes to keep the modicum of power that they have. And they don't even care who is the face of that power so long as the power still is within their reach. Um, I don't think anybody particularly cared for, for uh, Walker. I don't think that white people liked Walker. I think that behind the scenes that they were kind of pissed off that a black man was representing the Republican Party in Georgia because no one saw that on their 2022 bingo card or any bingo card for any year um, pertaining to the state of Georgia and their politics. However, because they are so gung-ho about keeping power, they said, screw it and just put their eggs in that basket and let them fall where they may. Thankfully, they ended up with egg on their face, because who needs Walker as a senator for any state, let alone Georgia?
8: And Larry, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Warnock, he's won four elections in two years uh, in a red state of Georgia, a state where Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams by eight points. Uh, you're bordering Florida, you're bordering uh, North Carolina, where Sarah Beasley had a very close race. Val Demings had a close race there in, uh, uh, in Florida. Should Warnock be seen as a front runner if Biden does run in 2024?
6: Well, Biden's running in twenty twenty four. There's there's no doubt about that. But his future in, in 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 national politics, absolutely, he's charismatic. Like you said, he carried a, a, you know obviously no one ever expected a few years ago he would that he, you know he would it can be able to carry Georgia. So certainly, certainly he has a he has a national profile, and has a has a bright uh, bright future. But it, you know you know let's 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 temper it a bit when we come to twenty twenty four. I know we're going to hear uh, enough of those conversations about. Um, President Biden, but as I said, um, my alpha brother, Senator Warnock, does have a bright future.
8: All right. We're going to keep this conversation going after the break of our Year in Review. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network.
10: On the next A Balanced Life with me, Dr. Jackie, it's time to tie up those loose ends
3: at purdueglobal.edu.
10: The new year, financial expert, Pamela Sams joins our panel. She will give us a checklist of things that we need to do before the calendar turns. We
13: develop our money mindset by the age of six. And so we have our sometimes six year old self still operating in the background of our money scripts.
10: That's next on A Balanced Life on Black Star Network.
14: We're all impacted by the culture, whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives. And we're going to talk about it every day, right here on The Culture, with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network.
4: Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Godfrey, the funniest dude on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Israel Houghton. Apparently, the other message I did was not fun enough. So this is fun. You are watching. Roland Martin, my man, unfiltered.
8: Gun violence, of course, was a motivating factor this year, uh, and people turning out to the polls. Many of these mass shootings ended up being some of the most significant events of this year, whether it was the Uvalde's elementary school shooting, uh, the Buffalo shooting at the supermarket. Uh, we saw carnage in America's streets that you just don't see in other nations. You put on top of that the number of police shootings that took place this year. Uh, one estimate has it at 993 people killed by police this year, which a down 50 from last year. Uh, the last three years in a row, we actually hit over a 1,000, nationally, people killed by police officers in America. I note, this does not happen in other countries. That is not normal, and we cannot allow that to become the new normal. Uh, Larry, I want to start with you. What do you think has to happen legislatively, both to deal with mass shootings and with police shootings uh, that we see continuing to plague the nation? Because the numbers are still higher than ever.
6: Well, you know, you know, Democrats fall hard for the George Floyd and policing act, and it it didn't happen obviously, and soon, and just in a couple of day in a couple of days, we're going to have the House switch from from blue to red. So you can forget any policing reform taking place over the next two years. But but my hope is that you know the Democrats will get the House back in twenty twenty four. Biden will win and will add some more add some more Democrats to the to the U S Senate. Hopefully and then we'll get some kind of policing reform. I also want to add, as it relates to this is- issue, we need to blame Tim S- Senator Tim Scott, because we know that there, there, was, a, there was a bipartisan, um, you know, I know, there was a bipartisan understanding and working on some police reform, and from everything you read, Tim Scott was the one, he was, he was uh, designated to work on this, on a police reform bill, but everything we read, it was, it was Tim Scott, one of our own, so to speak, who made sure that this essentially didn't happen. And based on the numbers you're talking about, and we know that these numbers can very very easily go up next year in in 2023, the fact that he would not negotiate in in all honesty and come to some kind of agreement is going to cost more black and brown folks their lives over the next several years. And that's just the bottom line. So I'm hopeful in the next couple of years, certainly not next year or the year after that, that we can – Democrats can retake the House and, like I said, hold on to the uh, Senate and the White House and we can get some kind of comprehensive police reform.
8: Uh, Matt, on the point of the mass shootings, no one seems to have a good idea on what to do about them. We've been dealing with them, you know, since Columbine, since most of us have been children. We have seen mass shootings at schools and other, uh, at other grocery stores at churches everywhere else. George Carlin used to talk about them, uh, that he said one day there will be shooters at grocery stores. We'll call them disgruntled uh, worshipers or something along those, uh, those lines. Uh, what can be done legally? to try to stop this
12: from happening? Because, as I said, this doesn't happen other places. Well, as you see in the wake of Evalde, I mean, there are obviously a number of lawsuits. Um, I saw that the, the big class action that was just filed starts out with the words of Cesar Chavez, you know, um, talking about the people being united will never be defeated. And that's what it ultimately comes down to me, uh, to for me, Robert. I think we have a real problem in this country with looking at reality rather than falling to rhetoric. And the reality is, so many people die at the hands of guns every year. It's an epidemic, and it's absurd, and it doesn't happen in other countries. Even the other countries we consider to be on our same plane, and, and by whatever metric you consider that. So what that comes down to is people have to stop letting the, the principle of freedom stand before practicality. And what we need to have is we need to have people demanding that our legislators, both on the state level and on the federal level, Not allow another thing to happen and try to co-opt it for their political purposes, but instead find a way to protect us. Um, You know, I live in Texas, right, which is kind of the standard for gun ownership. And it's absurd to me that the same people who complain about regulation on their gun have no problem going to DPS to get a sticker for their car, right? I mean, we need to have realistic conversations about guns and the fact that guns only exist to destroy, Uh, Irrespective of home defense and all the other ways you can constructively use them, it's not like other things in our society that have beneficial purposes outside of destruction. So I say all that to say is the problem is we've allowed the NRA and all these interest groups and rhetoric to control uh, solving this problem rather than people we put in the position to solve the problem. And until they're held accountable and made accountable to do it, we're not going to have any meaningful solutions.
8: And Kelly, you know, we, we always hear the same thing whenever there's a mass shooting or a police shooting, quite frankly. Uh, the politicians come out, they say we're sending our thoughts and prayers to the family. Uh, we hope that we can work together on an agreement. But at the end of the day, nothing happens on either front. What has to happen for something to actually happen?
13: I think there needs to be a complete overhaul of, gov- of our government, to be quite frankly frank with you, because it all hinges on Second Amendment and what people perceive the Second Amendment to be. We are, like, if people who, the people who have studied it and, you know, really understand that the Second Amendment was really about militia and not just having a gun in your home, like, that argument is neither here nor there anymore. Everybody has a reason to cap the gun. Everybody has a reason to not have a gun. The fact of the matter is we are in a culture that glorifies violence and that is inherently American. And until you get to the root of that, this is going to continue to happen. You can't change a culture, per se, with simply legislation. It needs to be a complete overhaul. And I'm not trying to be like some anarchist and be like, down with America. But if you're going to be real about this, if you really want to change something that is inherent to the culture of a country. You're gonna have to change the culture of the country. How do you do that? You kind of change the country. I don't know how to do that outside of a a revolution. Um, I'm I'm open for notes and pointers. (laughs) Um, But until that come to Jesus moment, that reckoning happens, we are going to continue having this. It is unfortunate. It is sad. Um, it is heartbreaking, but unfortunately, it is what it
8: is. You know, it's interesting to me that the same people who talk about freedom and liberty are unwilling to do anything about the police, government agents killing a thousand people a year. That doesn't sound like freedom. That sounds like big government. That sounds like tyranny to me. And something has to be done about it. We're going to talk more about this after the break. As we keep our year in review going. You're watching Rolling martyr Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network.
0: I love
3: at purdueglobal.edu.
10: Directing. It's a different kind of piece. I do believe that the 30 years I was acting was to prepare me for what I'm supposed to be doing and that what I'm really am good at.
4: But when you were acting, were you even thinking about directing? Nope. Were, were you? So what the hell happened?
10: If you had asked me 15 years ago, I probably would have said, no, I don't know. I was doing Ava's uh, Ava DuVernay's first film, I will follow. Mm-hmm. And during that process, I think because it was her first film, maybe she I... she self-taught? Absolutely. I probably gave too many suggestions. And at some point, Ava said to me, I think you're a director and you don't know it.
4: 0196, the cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered, PayPal is RM Unfiltered, Venmo is RM Unfiltered, Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com. Hey, I'm
7: Amber
2: Stevens west I'm Avery Sunshine. So this is Roger Bow. I got a message for Roland Mascot. Oh, I'm sorry, Ascot Martin. Buddy, you're supposed to be hooking me up with some of these mascots. I'm sorry, ascots that you claim to wear. Where's mine, buddy? Where's mine? That's all I got to say to you, okay? Mascot, goodbye.
3: Hi, this is Essence Atkins, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered.
8: Many people who made significant marks on the world uh, became our ancestors in the year 2022. Uh, In memoriam, we take a look at those who have left us in this year.
0: Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus Plus in President Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
1: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
2: I thought in that moment...
1: by the culture,
14: whether we know it or not. From politics to music and entertainment, it's a huge part of our lives, and we're going to talk about it every day right here on The Culture with me, Faraji Muhammad, only on the Black Star Network.
5: Next on The Black Table with me, Greg Carr, we welcome the Black Star Network's very own Roland Martin who joins us to talk about his new book, White Fear, how the browning of America is making white folks lose their minds. The book explains so much about what we're going through in this country right now, and how, as white people head toward becoming a racial minority, it's going to get, well, let's just say, even more interesting. We
4: are going to see more violence. We're going to see more vitriol, because as each Day passes, it it is a nail in that coffin. The one and only Roland Martin
5: on the next Black Table, right here on the Black Star Network.
4: When you talk about blackness and what happens in black culture, we're about covering these things that matter to us, uh, speaking to our issues and concerns.
12: This is a genuine people powered movement. There's a
4: lot of stuff that we're not getting, you get it, and you spread the word. We wish to plead our own cause. 0196 the cash app is dollar sign rm unfiltered PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered Venmo is RM Unfiltered Zelle is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. Ha 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 ha,
13: ha, 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 ha yeah. Hey I'm Antonique Smith
4: What up Lana Well and you are watching Rolling Martin Unfiltered
8: Starting remembrance of those who have transitioned from this earthly plane to join our ancestors in eternity. I wanted to go back to our panel uh, to ask you who do you think was the most significant? passing of this year, uh, a year where so many uh, of our heroes and legends have gone on to eternity. Uh, for me, I think that something that has not been uh, looked at enough is the number of young rappers and entertainers who died in 2022. It seems like we cannot go a week without a prominent young rapper, normally under 25, either dying to drug, uh, gun violence, drug addiction, or some other circumstance. And the number of young comedians also who have passed away in 2022, uh, under the age of 30, has been startling. And I think for this generation, uh, they have learned to live with the trauma of the of the people that they love and look up to passing so frequently that it's part of the hardening that we see with this generation, where they simply believe that life's not going to last that long because so many people they look up to uh, expire so early. So I'm going to go to the panel. Uh, Larry, I'm going to start with you. What, what death this year do you think uh, struck you the most?
6: So it could easily be Cindy Poitier, right, you know, in terms of his, you know, his, his, you know guess who's coming to dinner, you know, of his number of other Oscars, et etc., to serve with love. But I'm going to go with uh, someone who, when I saw, you know, with a list of names that, that struck me of, of a memory I remember from years ago, and that's Lonnie Guineer. And I remember when she was, at the time, I think she was a law professor at Penn. Honestly, I would think I was an undergrad, didn't really know who she was. And I got invited to some kind of event, and she spoke. And I remember being blown away and had having a long-term impact on my life. So for me, like I said, I'm I'm highlighting um, Lonnie Guineer as a person who, like I said, overall really kind of had an impact on, um, you know, just my life. But like I said, certainly Sidney Poitier in terms of international um, film star, in terms of everything he's done and winning Oscars, and also obviously being a role model for a number of, of Black actors. Who's going on to win Oscars and his support of other Black actors throughout his throughout his life?
8: Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. uh, What death this year really struck you, and do you think will have the longest lasting impact?
13: Um, hmm. there was a lot of names on that list, um, but I'm gonna go personal this time and say the death of my brother. Um, he was 26 years old. His name was Robert Batia, and he was killed in his home, um, in Milwaukee of this year. Um, as far as celebrities go, the one that hit me the most, mainly because it was triggering because of my brother's death, was takeoffs, because it, it, it came out of nowhere. He had a history of doing nothing wrong to anyone, and, and yet he was still taken out of this world before the age of 30. Um, it is heartbreaking to me, uh, that... So many young Black men, um, of course, Black women as well, but so many young Black men just don't get to see their fullest potential for whatever reason by way of gun violence. And uh, this is not about to be a spiel on -on Black-on-Black violence. That's not a thing. None of that. But, again, with the romanticization of guns and the culture of gun violence in this country we have become desensitized to people dying by way of bullet wounds. And it's sad and the pain doesn't necessarily go away. With my brother specifically, I'm the oldest of three. And when people ask about like, well, how many siblings do you have? I immediately say I have two, but now I'm down to one because someone didn't think my brother's life was worth living in his own home. And there are millions of of anecdotes like that throughout this country, and it's got to stop. It, it's, it, it changes you in a way that you have no idea how to think, how to act, how to be anymore. Like the 24 hours between finding out about my brother's murder and, and the day before, I am a completely different person now because of that. I don't recognize myself just 24 hours before I found out that he died. And I can only imagine how many other people are in that predicament just this year, just today, because of gun violence. It's, it's just got to stop.
8: Absolutely. Of course, our prayers and support are you. And the anything you need. You, you know how to find me. So we, we, of course, want to support you in every way possible. And you're completely correct that this is something that touches nearly every black family. If it's not a brother or sister, it's a cousin or uncle. It's not, it's not six degrees separation from gun violence in our communities. It's one or two degrees at most. Uh, Matt, I want to
12: turn to you. What, what do
8: you think will, was the most striking passing of this year for you?
12: Uh, honestly, I think it was Bill Russell, um, considering just all his contributions to our people, to sports, to... He was just the titan of a man. Um, but kind of personally, as it relates to the, uh, the celebrities in particular, the one that I did not remember until I saw his name and face come across is Bernard Wright. And I remember distinctly finding his music when I was an undergrad at Howard. I'm a musician and I was in a band and a guy I played with uh, was wearing a Bernard Wright shirt. So I learned more about Bernard Wright. And, you know, I think about people like him because he was such an amazing keyboard player and he played with so many people, Tom Brown, his own projects. Um, He's just, you know, is another example of somebody who enriches our lives in ways we don't even necessarily Uh, realize until we we look at them in in retrospect. So I just really was uh, struck by his passing because I've been such a fan of his music uh, and his keyboard technique and ability for so long.
8: Absolutely, in of course, we uh, we pray and honor all those who have passed this year. Not just the celebrities, the people in your own individual lives, the people in your community, the people who had a real impact on you. And it is our duty to carry on their memory, carry on their work, to ensure that we properly honor them here uh, as they transition to be with the eternal kingdom uh, with our ancestors. Uh, Changing course. Of course, we are talking about what happened in 2022, but we also have to talk about what happened, what is going to happen in 2023. Earlier, we had a discussion about Ketanji Brown Jackson and the impact of her confirmation to the Supreme Court. Uh, but there are many upcoming cases uh, that we have to look at when it comes to the future of the court. Uh, joining us to discuss this, uh, the in upcoming anticipated cases, decisions is Shereen Mitchell, the, a social analyst and diversity strategist. Shereen, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today. How are you? I, I am outstanding. Uh, could you talk a little bit about some of the cases that we need to be looking out for? And from the Supreme Court, of course, Title 42 is going to be coming up for oral arguments in February. Um, the affirmative action cases are going to be decided coming up. What are some of the things that court watchers really need to be looking at?
7: Yeah, I think this is a very important year because I I, I don't think people realize how much um, our rights are on the ballot, you know, when it comes to these these particular cases. The Title 42 piece, I think, is really important, only in the context of it was just upheld um, and that we were expecting it to be overturned. Um, And for those people who don't know what Title 42 is basically it says that certain people cannot come into this country because of the pandemic. And I always find this very fascinating. So are we going to admit that the pandemic actually still exists in this country right now and we we need to take care of it? Or are we only going to relegate that to the border as a conversation? And Title 42 is very complicated because a lot of the pushback is coming from Texas, you know, from the border. But ultimately, the the way that this is being used, it was a um, it was a case uh, that was used during uh, the Trump administration uh, to minimize how many people can come through. And I just find that case, which is going to happen in February, going to be a very telling case about which version of this country that we believe we live in. Because if we're still going to say that immigrants are the only ones that bring, you know you know, diseases or problems in this country, then we're also making a very, very distinct statement. Um, And right now, people are still dying from some of the worst uh, respiratory diseases that we have seen in quite some time in this country.
8: And and kind of piggybacking on that point, the you have the dissent opinion uh, that was joined between Neil Gorsuch and Katanja Brown Jackson, and they talked a lot about this not being within the powers of the Supreme Court. That the Supreme Court is not supposed to make uh, immigration policy, and effectively, what they are doing is overstepping the president, overstepping Congress, overstepping the regulatory agency, overstepping international law when it comes to uh, claiming asylum in this country, and really legislating from the bench. What are the long-term ramifications of having a conservative activist court of this nature?
7: I, I, you know, that is such a. I'm so glad you said that because I, I don't think people realize that that is not the purpose of that court. That court is supposed to only see cases that they think uh, that that have been legally been pushed put, put before them, but not make decisions. And the fact that it was stopped in the first place by by SCOTUS, that is a, a huge tell that our systems are either breaking down or completely changing in the way that we are not. Um, accepting. Because the president making the decision and then SCOTUS saying, OK, we're, we're going to stop that decision, is fascinating in, in two ways. When it was made um, uh, during the Trump administration, that didn't happen. They didn't stop it. But now that the Biden administration is trying to do that, well, I think the courts are now telling us that they are a biased political court. And that's, that's scary, because we have never had... Such a biased political court like this, from a from an ideological political stance. Yeah, at least they used to lie to us like they at least
8: we used to take the time they may have came to the same decision they at least take the time to you know make it sound like they were basing it on something now it's just turned into uh, uh, i don't know y'all figured it out now you can't do it uh, i want to move on to the biden student loan cancellation that's going to be before the supreme court uh, because i don't know if this one's going to make it uh, because given the composition of the court and it's very tenuous the grounds on which president biden based his student loan cancellation, it was very arbitrary the what numbers that he picked, they will try to pick the number out of the hat, uh, 10,000 for some people, 20,000 for other people. Uh, do you think that the student loan cancellation will actually survive the Supreme Court?
7: This one's actually very tricky because um, I don't think people realize that the, the the student debt that he's trying to forgive is is from the Department of Education. And that those loans are drastically different than other loans. And the reason why this case is, is fascinating, and again, another one that's going to happen in February, is because the people from Texas again the other, the state that brings these cases um, is that one of the one of the. Um plaintiffs is basically saying, I have a corporate loan. And since I have a corporate loan, I am not going to be eligible for this. So what they're trying to say is that these are discriminatory practices. Again, very fascinating when those discriminatory practices are being used in the court and when they're being justified versus not, right? But this is about the Department of Education, which, by the way, Biden has a say over. I mean, that's the federal government, and so the the other uh, planes are basically someone who didn't get a Pell grant. So now we're actually going into class uh, discrimination or divisions. So I think this case is going to be very interesting in terms of what people should be looking, looking at, because we also have to remember public education. Um, and that included public colleges and community colleges, was once free until segregation, (laughs) when people, you know, there were people who were getting that for free and segregation happened and they decided black people shouldn't get it. Um, And then also based on a class perspective, people who didn't have the funds to go to a private university and spend, you know, their family had the wherewithal to spend, you know, so much money on their education, and those people are also complaining. But there is a fundamental misunderstanding. This is about public education. And if we can't have that distinct conversation, then I think we're gonna have a little bit of a problem when this does actually move forward in February. Because um, I think the way that court has already said that they're kind of leaning, basically says that they're they're making statements about um, class and, and privilege in context of this particular case.
8: It's taking, staying in that same lane, of course, we have the affirmative action cases that we're arguing from the Supreme Court this fall uh, that will be decided upon. You know, one case of Asian American students claiming they were discriminated against. Uh, do you think that this court will finally overturn affirmative action, overturn the precedents of the Michigan State uh, Michigan uh, case from over a decade ago, overturn the uh, opinions of uh, Sandra Day O'Connor when it comes to uh, weighing different factors in uh, admissions and really just. this away, the ephemeral causeway that has created, in many cases, the middle class by educating more people that the people who deride
7: it call affirmative action. Yeah, you know, this is this is sort of rolling back rights, right? Because, again, what I said earlier, that's why I said what I said, there were people who didn't get the right to go to college. We didn't get the, the public uh, community aspect of it. So this is a case against a private institution. And um, UNC is not one, but the, the Harvard one is the one. And if you think about some of the statements that were made, they're basically saying that affirmative action is is making a choice simply on race and nothing else and that's not what's happening here what what people are not understanding about this debate is that race is just one of many factors that's, that schools are picking um to to, to have a diverse uh, um, system of, of students who are getting edu- educated and opportunities for them whether they're wealthy or not I always find it uh, fascinating with the Harvard conversation is that legacy um, students are not being challenged. The students that are being challenged are the people who are saying, these are students that don't deserve to be here and that they're somehow being granted something they don't deserve. And it is causing a clash between Asian-Americans and African-Americans, as well as a clash about this conversation about what is actual racism. If you listen to this case, and I think people should pay close attention to what was actually said, even Asian-Americans are saying that they don't fall into the classification of race. So race, religion, sexuality, and they're outside of that, and that's the case they're presenting. Then are we redefining race in this country now? And I really want to understand people not um, guessing or, or, or framing that if, if one group says they're not a part of the race class then and, and they're not a minority, what does that mean as who's being classified as a minority in this in this country and who's being classi- classified as white or white privilege passing. And that that's what this case is about. I am not sure how this case is going to turn because I do know we have people like Thomas who does not believe in affirmative action at all. Uh, but we also have people like Jackson who who's, who's very adamant that race is not the definitive factor here and we should have a broader conversation.
8: Absolutely. I want to bring the panel in on this discussion. Uh, Matt, I'm going to go to you first. Uh, what do you think is going to be the uh, big case that the Supreme, Supreme Court decides in 2023? Um, for me, I think that they've been chip, chip, chipping away at voting rights for the last decade or so uh, and uh, chip, chip, chipping away at the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, for the last couple of decades. And I think they might go for the full enchilada and just reform the Interstate Commerce Clause and take away the ability for the federal federal government to uh, infringe upon individual actions. What do you think will be the big thing they decide?
12: You know, I think you kind of spoke to it. I think they're going to empower states even more to make uh, decisions and to try to take away some of the federal power. I'm not sure exactly what the big decision will be. I just frankly don't know. But I do think that Ms. Mitchell uh, was brilliant in her analysis insofar as it's our rights on the table. And I think everything is under attack. I think the Dobbs decision from this last term is a precursor to what we're going to see. And I think there are going to be other things on the chopping block And I think it's really going to require us as Americans to have an existential conversation as to what we're going to allow. Look, every time I come on the show, I tell people that they work for us. We don't work for them. So it's absurd that we have nine people who are acting as gatekeepers. You can tell I argue for a living, right? Acting as gatekeepers in Washington, D.C., telling me that I can no longer be an American fully in the ways I've been able to my 36 years on this planet. It's absurd. And I don't really know how you stop it, because people are buying the rhetoric, and that rhetoric is so politicized. And I think Ms. Mitchell, again, was spot on with that. You know, we've been lying to ourselves for all these years about the Supreme Court being apolitical. They are super political, and they're showing us that. And I think anyone who cares about their rights and cares about the Constitution and cares about true freedom as an American should be concerned about what they're going to do in this term, because they're continuing to gut the freedoms that we have. So I'm not sure exactly what that answer is, but I'm suspecting it's going to be everything. And I think they're coming at our necks with everything they have on every question that comes before them.
8: Uh, Kelly, what do you think this term of the court might mean for women's rights? We've already seen them roll back Dobbs. Uh They could come for contraceptive net, nets. They could come for equal pay. Uh, what do you think the, is going to be the outcome of this term for women?
13: It's going to suck, no matter what the uh, uh, votes are going to come down to, just because of how the court is split at the moment. But to your point, when you were talking about what the next big case is going to be, I keep you know, having nightmares about... Uh, Justice Thomas' concurrence, I believe it was, when he was saying about basically the other cases uh, that uh, he would like to see uh, challenged in the court regarding contraception, regarding gay marriage, regarding um, uh, it was like everything except loving, because that would actually affect his personal marriage, Um, all of it is is at stake at this point. And that is what I'm most concerned about. It's not just women. Although I am a woman, I am gravely concerned. Um, a, a lot of this has to do with every aspect of who I am as a person. Um, I keep going back to, it's, I don't think it's coming up in the Supreme Court, per se, but with this affirmative action case, I really do feel like, uh, as the previous panelists talked about, we're going to have a question of what exactly is race in this country? What is black? What is white? And that kind of came up a little bit last month in Louisiana regarding voting rights and who would be considered a black person, right? So with the affirmative action case, even though it's not necessarily pertaining to voting rights, some of that language might be pulled and talked about in other cases pertaining to voting rights, pertaining to uh race, and the like. So I'm worried about it all.
8: Absolutely. Uh, Larry, we're running tight. Really quick, what should people look out for from the Supreme Court in this next term?
6: The fact that that the Supreme Court will continue to move as far right as you can. And the bottom line is the justices don't care because they have a lifetime appointment. And I'll just leave it at that.
8: You're right about that. Thank you so much, Ms. Mitchell, for joining us. We're going to take a quick break here on Roland Martin Unfiltered, streaming live on the Black Star Network. We'll be right back.
3: at purdueglobal.edu.
10: Directing. It's a different kind of piece. I do believe that the 30 years I was acting was to prepare me for what I'm supposed to be doing and that what I'm really am good at.
4: But when you were acting, were you even
10: thinking about directing? Nope. Were, were you? So what the hell happened? If you had asked me 15 years ago, I probably would have said, no, I don't know. I was doing Ava's uh, Ava DuVernay's first film, I Will Follow. Mm-hmm. And during that process, I think, because it was her first film, maybe I... she self-taught? Absolutely. I probably gave too many suggestions. And at some point, Ava said to me, I think you're a director and you don't know it. On the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly
13: violence. Soil. You
1: you will not
4: white people soil. are losing their damn minds. 0196. The Cash app is dollar sign, RM Unfiltered. PayPal is RM Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com.
5: Next on The Black Table, with me, Greg Carr, we welcome the Black Star Network's very own Roland Martin, who joins us to talk about his new book, White Fear, How the Browning of America is Making White Folks Lose Their Minds. The book explains so much about what we're going through in this country right now and how, as white people head toward becoming a racial minority, it's going to get, well, let's just say even more interesting. We are
4: going to see more violence. We're going to see more vitriol because as each day passes,
5: it, it is a nail in that coffin. The one and only Roland Martin, on the next Black Table, right here on the Black Star Network.
13: Hey, I'm Anthony Smith. Hello, everyone. It's Kiara Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily.
10: And we're, we're SWB.
13: What's up, y'all?
10: It's Ryan Destiny, and you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. <laughs>
8: education matters. Only about 3% of engineers nationally are African-American. As you all know, I'm an alumni of Clark Lane University, and the Atlanta University uh, Center Consortium is working to change this. They have received a $1.5 million investment from the A. James and Alice B. Clark Foundation in order to help support minority engineers. Here to talk about this are Dr. Sed Sewell, AUCC, Director of Office of Academic Research and Student Success and Dr. Jonathan Gaines, the AUCC Assistant Director of Engineering Education and Innovation. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this uh, this outstanding news. Uh, Dr. Sowell, can you talk a little bit about this grant pro of this grant that's been received and how it will be used to increase the number of African American engineers?
14: Well, let me just say thank you for allowing us to come and talk about the work we've been doing. As you know, for the last 54 years, the Atlanta University Center Consortium and the, uh, the, um, the Dual Degree Engineering Program, which was is the first of its kind in the nation, has been helping to increase the number of African-American males, African-American females in the field of engineering. 54 years ago, there were roughly... Uh, 500 African-American engineers in the nation. Today, today, there are roughly 85,000. And though that sounds very impressive, uh, that is less than 3% of the total population of engineers. And so we are committed to helping to increase the number. So since we started this work 54 years ago through the AUC Dual Degree Engineering Program, we have produced over 4,000 students who are now engineers, one of which is Dr. Jonathan Gaines, who you will meet shortly, who is joining us. But the Institute for Dual Degree uh, Engineering Advancement was uh, conceived to help other other private liberal institutions to um, think about building out a dual degree engineering program using the best practices of the AUC. And so uh, we're so excited that the Clark Foundation has invested in uh, this program, this institute, to help us to build out this program. We will be uh, creating makerspace uh, for students, experiential learning for students, as well as convening various um, liberal arts colleges, uh, minority serving throughout the nation to um, share our best practices that we've been doing for the last 54 years. And so we're excited that the $1.5 million is just a uh, step in that direction. We're hoping to use this as a seed for a $4.1 million capital campaign to build out this institute on the AUC uh, campus. And so we're excited about the uh, commitment from the foundation. We're even more excited about being able to continue the work that we've been doing for 54 years and to help produce more African-American as well as minority
8: um, engineers for the nation. And so we're excited about that. Right, and staying with you before we bring Dr. Gaines into the conversation, I can talk a little bit about the $4 million capital campaign and building out this uh, uh, this engineering center. You know, Where is it going to be located at on the campus? What are going to be the goals of this? And, and how can people help get involved in this capital campaign to start contributing now? Well, as you know,
14: February is um, World Engineering Day, World Engineering Month. And so we're hoping to launch this campaign in February. We're looking for all um, minority engineers to support this campaign uh, because it's the first of its kind. This is a national hub for uh, engineering, for minority engineers. And so Dr. Gay talked talk more about the overall goals of the Institute, but for the first time, this is a leading Institute to help build out and help grow more minority engineers for the country. And as you know, um, engineering is a, a area where there's great need for diversity. However, unfortunately, it has not seen the diversity as it should over the last plus years. And so we're excited about being able to help advance this for our country and uh, the field of engineering.
8: All right, and Dr. Gaines, Gaines it's a a great place to bring you in. Uh, I, I, I was just gonna say, Dr. Gaines, is a great place to bring you in. I want you to talk a little bit about what the goals and
15: ideas behind the Institute will be. Absolutely, so Institute for Dual Degree Engineering Advancement or IDEA, it really has four outcomes. The outcomes are increased innovation for our students, increased diversity and in understanding engineering identity, how that plays a role, in really kind of helping our students understand the value of their diversity to the field of engineering. The third outcome is increased engagement. And so being able to really uh, involve our students and increase their opportunities on campus. And then the last one is increased achievement for our students. And so the um, four outcomes really are a uh, way for us to increase the engagement um, in advanced dual degree engineering uh, broadly on a national scale. So we're gonna really research these outcomes be able to really um, bring about solid um, and advancement for our students. And so this is a labor of love for me because as Dr. Sewell mentioned, I'm a product of the program. And so it really came, came back to make a difference, really impact the students. Um, really to help them uh, realize their dreams and and realize what their goals are for the field of engineering. Absolutely. And kind of
8: selfishly, is there any way we can have a Steagles built inside of the Institute? Now, we haven't had that on campus in a while now. <laughs> you know, you need that wings on wheat around two, three o'clock in the morning. Just just a suggestion, putting that out there. I want to bring the panel in. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Walker. I want
6: to give you mean, an opportunity to ask a question of, the, of our guest. Yeah, congratulations. I know this is a critically important issue, and you mentioned the 3%. And I had, I guess, two questions. The first question is, in terms of getting this money and what you're, as you build it out, build out, what percentages or numbers have you, in terms of what you said we were looking to increase by as it relates to black or minoritized students? That's the first question. And the second question is, you know, some of the institutions we talk about here, Morehouse, Spelman, you know, in terms of the overall cost into members of the black community, if they don't, you know, if they don't have, they have got a lot of financial aid, it may be difficult. What is your, what do you, what do you, when you come to talk to students, recruiting students about the three plus two program, what are you saying about how we could help you out with cost and, you know, make sure you don't have a number, uh, too much debt? So those are my two questions.
14: So let me just jump in there first with the, the second question uh, first. As you know, the dual degree is a three plus two program. Students will go to the um, one of the three AUC schools, be it Clark Atlanta University, Morehouse College, or Spelman College for three years, then transfer to one of the nine partnering schools, be it Georgia Tech, which is our signature uh, campus, or University of Michigan, or uh, A&T, uh, North Carolina a or, or uh, even Auburn University. But more so than that, we support students financially. Many of our students, as you know, these schools are very expensive. Uh, Morehouse is very expensive. As a graduate, as well as a uh, graduate of Clark University, these schools are very expensive. So we use resources to help augment their financial need. And so we provide through the dual degree engineering program money to help move them through the, uh, the program. We're hoping to continue to do this with the Institute, as well as to build upon the opportunities to provide these students with experiential learning. So they will be able to have the experience of a maker space, for example, to be able to work across campuses, to work on projects, on various design opportunities for these students. This is is the idea of building this building. So these students have a space for them to focus on their craft and the home, their overall skills, and so uh, we're excited about that. Uh, to your first question, you know the AUC has been doing this work for 54 years. We're now just expanding on what we've been doing since the beginning. As you may know, this AUC dual degree engineering program is the first of its kind in the nation. Founded in 1969, when there were no dual degree engineering programs on either a black or white campus, we were able to start this program. And for the last 50 plus years, we have been helping to produce for the nation African-American engineers. And so as you see, Dr. Gaines is just one, but we have some stellar alums, one of which is Ted Colbert, who is the CEO of, or is the president of Boeing's uh, defense. And so he's just one of our many alums that are doing extremely well We're hoping to build upon that type of legacy and to produce even more through the Institute.
8: Absolutely. Attorney Manning, did you have a question?
12: First, congratulations to y'all on not only the continuation of the program, but the influx of money. And what I was kind of interested in is how, if at all, is the Institute leveraging the national need right now for infrastructure, right? I mean... Obviously, we have crumbling bridges and stuff around the country. So, presumably, we need more civil engineers, mechanical, as we kind of uh, go forward with technology. So, how is the institute leveraging that? And are there any plans to work with the government, maybe in a a, uh, a formalized capacity, to create a pipeline? What are your you know goals in that respect?
15: I think okay, there you, are, you want to talk about of- that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, there are a lot, a lot of opportunities for partnerships. I think one of the strengths of our program is that we have um, all these uh, great engineering partners and so we have um, ability to send our students to these uh, partner institutions and they can leverage a lot of resources and really work on really the problems that are, we know they're interdisciplinary, that, that, that are really kind of center of what we need to be working on as a society. Um, I also want to touch on the previous uh, question in regard to how are we going to increase the numbers? Um, And I want to mention that, you know, uh, 15 short years ago, our representation numbers were much better. You know, we were at uh, over 5% representation in the um, field of engineering. And so we're really trying to uh, get back to some of the things that really kind of um, we need to to really increase the number of, of black engineers.
8: Well, I want to thank and, and you, you see, both. So I'll just share with you, right, just, go ahead.
14: Just, just share it you quickly, is that, you know, we have a very robust engineering internship program in which every student in our program is um, linked to an internship both in either the private industry and or government. And so we're hoping to allow these experiences to help strengthen and augment what they're learning in the classroom. So when they leave the program after three years or after five years with the overall experience, they leave with the experience of understanding what it really means to be an engineer. And so again, we're excited about this investment through the Clark Foundation. We're looking forward to all the great work that will come out of the Institute. We're happy to have Dr. Gaines to join us as we're helping to build this work. And so we're asking all of our colleagues throughout the nation, alumni, both at our institutions as well as throughout the country, Please reach out to us. We'll love to have you to be a part of this great work that we're doing.
8: Well, I want to thank you both so much for all the work that you're doing. It's great to see the uh, Lane University Center progressing. Uh, of course, we have the Data Science Center, which received, I think, a, a grant earlier this year with the work of the Washington and all the great things that are happening uh, in that area, the really mecca, the epicenter for black education in this country as a biased alumni. I would say that right now. Dr. Sewell, Dr. Gaines, thank you so much for joining us. I also want to thank our panel for joining us today, Dr. Larry Walker, uh, Attorney Matt Manning, also Kelly Bethea, who had to leave us earlier. Thank you guys so much for being with us, uh, make sure that you like and subscribe and share. We're trying to get thousand likes on the video. We want to make sure that this thing goes viral, so we can show that black folks really do have an appetite for real black news on black media. We're also going to be acknowledging the Bring the Funk Plant fan club, so you'll see that scrolling on your screen. I have to thank Roland Martin for letting me keep his seat warm. Got to thank the control room for holding down to on the ones and twos and making sure that all this thing looks, all these things look like they are running smoothly. And I have to thank you, the viewers, for talk, uh, for listening to us throughout this week. Without you, I'm just a crazy person talking into a microphone. Follow me on all social media, at Robert Patillo. And as I say, it's an every show. In the words of Gil Scott Heron, no matter the consequences, that are figures to grip your senses. You've got to hold on to your dreams. Hold on to your dreams, America. Holla! <laughs>